Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. In the late 1460, Sir Thomas Mallory was in jail, and not for the first time. Throughout his life as a knight, he had essentially uh, functioned as a brigand. He'd been thrown into jail for all sorts of things, robbery, kidnapping, and now he found himself incarcerated because he had plotted against the King Edward IV. This was during the time of the War of the Roses. And so Sir Thomas Mallory decided during his imprisonment to uh, occupy his time with a little bit of literary work. He'd always been fascinated by the stories of King Arthur, and so he pulled out his quill and he wrote his own version of those stories. And, And his form of the stories is the form that they've kind of been handed down to us. The way he arranged it is how it became popular to us. His book is known to us by the uh, French title of its last section, Le Mort d'Arthur, The Death of Arthur. And it's interesting, when he describes the death of King Arthur after that famous final battle, Arthur is wounded and he's taken away, and they they bring him on the boat to the Isle of Avalon. Uh, There's an interesting description he gives of the, the tomb where Arthur rests and the inscription that is on the tomb. It is a Latin inscription, uh, so bear with me. It's hic yesit Arturis rex quandam rexque futuris. For those of you who, like me, have not studied Latin, I'll give you the, uh, the translation. Here lies Arthur, the once and future king. Here lies Arthur, the once and future king. I get the once part because he was, you know, King Arthur and and then they killed him. So he was once a king. The future part, though, is a little bit, I don't know. Like, what is that all about? Well, there's a part of the mythology of King Arthur that you might not be familiar with, even if you know the story, you've heard it a thousand times in all the different versions, that the, the, the tale was told, the legend arose that King Arthur would come back one day. He had delivered the kingdom once from from the evil Saxons or or whoever, but when the nation was in peril in some future date, Arthur would return. He would come back. Some said he was staying on the Isle of Avalon, wherever that is, until he was needed again. Others said he was resting under some mountain somewhere until he was called upon again. If you've read C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy, You know, according to the third book, that hideous strength that Arthur is actually on the planet Venus. Interesting. Historians say that the enduring popularity of those King Arthur stories is that Arthur, the the character, is a restitutor orbis. He is a restorer of the world. He is a great man who comes along in a time of peril and saves what seems to be on the brink of being lost. He restores what is lost. And so the myth of his return plays into that. He restored the kingdom once, and he will come and restore it again. Myths like this sometimes arise even around historical figures. 
if you know your Byzantine history, and who among us doesn't love Byzantine history, uh, you know that the last emperor of Constantinople, Constantine XI, was killed by the Turks when the city fell in 1453. But if you go to Greece, where there are many statues of Constantine XI holding up his sword in a militant fashion, if you read the inscriptions, you will find, yes, they killed him in 1453, but he will be coming back to restore the kingdom of the Greeks. You're like, hmm, I'm not so sure. But it's a mythology that is developed out of a longing for restoration, a longing to see a lost world restored to what it once was. That great Christian kingdom of Byzantium lost to time, Constantine will return and restore it. When you hear stories like this as a Christian, you recognize their origin. The source of such myths, they point back to the story of Christ. They point back to the expectation of the return of Christ. Christ, who left his kingdom but promised one day to return. Jesus Christ is the true restitutor orbis, the restorer of worlds. And here we see in Luke's text at the beginning of Acts, this moment where he leaves his kingdom. In the text we've read, we see the conversation turns to the kingdom in verse 6, picking up on a theme that Jesus has been speaking of. The kingdom of God was his theme for the 40 days that he's been with these disciples after his resurrection. And so they ask him in verse 6 a very pointed question related to that kingdom. They say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, as we've observed, this is one of those instances where we can look at the uh, behavior of the apostles and, and feel like we've got one up on them, like we know better. If we had been there with Jesus, our understanding of the nature of the kingdom would have precluded us from embarrassing ourselves by asking Jesus such a question. It almost suggests that with all that they've witnessed, with Jesus's death and burial and resurrection, that they've sort of been waiting saying, well, this is great, Jesus. It's, it's awesome that you rose from the dead. Now will you do the main thing you came to do? Now will you do the thing that we've been waiting on you for? Love the atonement. That was awesome. But will you please restore the kingdom to Israel? Is it now time to, to, to get on with it? You can detect all sorts of, of motives in that question, a misunderstanding about the nature of the kingdom that they still think that it is a political kingdom that Jesus has come to deliver, that, that he died, that he rose from the grave so that he could overthrow the Caesars and restore the throne of David. But that question also reveals a longing. That question reveals a longing that they have. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They long to see the restoration of that glory gone. They long to see the restoration of that kingdom that was promised, that kingdom whose foundations were meant to be unshakable. Will you now restore it? Will you now put it back together? Will you now bring glory back to it after this long period of humiliation? Maybe they don't understand, but their hearts are in the right place. 
Their hearts are in the right place. They long to see Jesus do this work of restoration. It's interesting, too, to see in this question what they anticipate. We look at the ascension as this sort of bookmark, the ending of a story that, that began with the birth of Jesus, like he came down and now he's going back up and, and, and the music should play and, and, and the scene fades out. But they don't see this moment as an ending. They are anticipating a beginning. With everything that they've witnessed, the things that we still look back on and celebrate as world-changing, they are still thinking this is only the beginning. Are they wrong about that? Are they right? Yes, the work of atonement, the resurrection, it is accomplished. And calling that a great work is so inadequate. And yet, isn't there something left to be done? Isn't there something left to be fulfilled, some work left to do? Their question shows that they know that Jesus came to the world to restore the world. They anticipate there are great things to come. But then Jesus rebukes them. Jesus' answer puts them in their place. They ask him the question, and, and there's a lot of heart in this question, but Jesus, it's like he doesn't hear what their hearts are saying, and instead he just says, no, nah, you shouldn't be asking questions like this. In verse 7, he said, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. You're asking, and I know you're sincere, but this is not a question you get to ask, Jesus is saying. It's not for you to know. And there is something positive, I think, in what Jesus says, something we can take away from this. At least he's saying there is a plan, there is a time frame, there is something that has been fixed. He uses that word fixed by the Father's authority. There's a certainty behind that. That's assuring. But there's still not an answer. There's a plan. There's something fixed by the Father's authority, but Jesus doesn't answer the question. He doesn't tell us when. He says it's not for you to know. In other words, it's presumptuous to ask. The fact that you're asking suggests you don't know what you are. You don't know where you stand in relation to these great things, to be asking such a question and expecting an answer. This is so far above your station. It's not for you to know, he says. It feels like a rebuke. It feels like a, a, a non-answer. Jesus is shutting down this line of questioning. They're asking him about the kingdom, and he's like, no, this is not for you to know. And then it seems as if he changes the subject a little bit as well and goes back to what he was talking about in verse 5, which is the promise of the Holy Spirit. So they want to know about the kingdom. Jesus is like, that's not for you to know. Let's, let's go back to the Holy Spirit thing that I was just telling you. It seems like Jesus is dodging this. He's shutting it down. But what if he isn't? What if he isn't? What if we read this passage wrongly when we assume that Jesus is giving his disciples a non-answer to their question? It's true that Jesus takes this question of timing and says, this is not for you to know. That part is true. One of the things I love 
about our kitchen counters is that they go up higher than Lori can reach. And what that means is for certain objects, necessities, things that she needs, she either has to get a ladder to reach them or she has to ask me. And so it gives me some power, right? There are things I could decide are not for her, and I could place them (laughs) on that upper shelf. If there are things she likes to cook that I don't like to have cooked, I can place those things up on the top shelf. And Jesus is doing that a little bit. The the whole question of the timing of the Father, like this mystery of God's plan, he's taking it and he's putting it on the shelf and saying, you don't get to play with this. You don't get to see these answers. They're too high for you. But he does say something. Like he does tell them something. He does answer the question, not of timing, but he does answer something relevant about the kingdom. He doesn't describe the timing, but he describes the way the kingdom will advance. The kingdom will advance by the power of the Spirit. When you are clothed with the Spirit, when you are covered by the Spirit, you will advance with power. The kingdom will advance from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, to the end of the earth. There will be an advance of spiritual power geographically as the kingdom expands. So no, it's not for you to know the timing and the season of the things that are fixed by God's authority. But, but, you will see it. You will see the power advance. You will see the spirit build the kingdom. Indeed, Jesus' words here in verse 7 are an outline of the book of Acts, what we're about to read. When we read those words, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the end of the earth, we imagine that Jesus is giving a sort of version of the Great Commission, this, this big open question, unfulfilled. And even in our own time, this work has not been done. But there's a sense in which, by the end of the book of Acts, the words that Jesus speaks will have been fulfilled. In Jerusalem, he says. In the book of Acts, the first seven chapters are about the growth of the spiritual kingdom, the church, in the city and around the city of Jerusalem. That story comes to its climax in the stoning of Stephen, that deacon who goes out and proclaims in public the truth of the gospel and is murdered in the streets for doing it. And then in verse 8, there is, I'm sorry, in in chapter 8, there's a shift that takes place. After the death of Stephen, there's a persecution of the church. And as a result of that, although the apostles stay, There is a diaspora. There's a spreading out of people that takes place. Believers are scattered. And in chapter 8, verse 1, we read, they are scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Samaria. The very regions Jesus spoke of in chapter 1. As soon as chapter 8, that expansion is taking place as the persecution drives the gospel into these places. And in chapters 8 through 12, you'll read of the conversion of Saul. You'll read of the spread of the gospel from the Jewish world into the Gentile world through the ministry of Peter. And so you get in chapter 12 to this climax where King Herod 
goes out before the people to speak, and God strikes him dead for not giving glory to God when they cheer him and praise him. The death of Herod, there's a little note appended afterwards at the end of chapter 12, but the word of God increased and multiplied, which you could take as as a uh, motto, a theme for the whole book. The word of God increased and multiplied. It is happening. The thing Jesus said would take place is taking place. And then in Acts chapter 13, we begin the story in Antioch with these two men, Saul and Barnabas. This Holy Spirit raises up and sends as missionaries. And the rest of the book of Acts chronicles the spread of the gospel until finally Paul is in Rome, the other end of the world psychologically, culturally, in terms of power, at the other end of the spectrum. He's in the very capital of the Caesars, testifying to the kingdom of God. And Paul declares in his last speech in chapter 28, this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. The promise of the words Jesus speaks in chapter 1, being fulfilled throughout the book, of the Acts of the Apostles, until Paul, this apostle out of time, this apostle called late in the game, finds himself at the very center of the oppressive Roman Empire, preaching the gospel of transformation to the Gentiles, with consequences we're all familiar with that were probably too much for the the first apostles at the ascension even to have imagined the transformation of the Roman Empire by the gospel. Here's the point. You won't know the plan in advance, Jesus says. It's not for you to know. You won't know what's happening. You won't know the timing of it. That is fixed by the Father's authority, and it's not yours to know. But you will see the power You won't know the plan, but you will see the power. You will see the power of the Spirit. You will see the kingdom advance as the borders of the visible church are pushed farther and farther till Christ's kingdom expands and grows and grows. I don't think he's dodging the question. I think he's telling them what it's going to look like, the restoration of the kingdom. It's as if he's saying to them, when they ask, will you now restore the kingdom? Jesus is saying, yes, but I'll do it through you. I will do it through my church. Jesus' ascension differs. When we talk about the return of Jesus, it's not like people talking about King Arthur coming back one day or Constantine XI, because they died. They were killed in battle. And myths arose that they would come back again. Sure, they were defeated, but they will return and triumph eventually. Jesus Christ didn't leave in defeat. He died, but he defeated death. He was resurrected, and in that moment of glory, he ascends. He doesn't depart in death. He ascends after his triumph over death. But... When Luke tells the story of the ascension, I mean, no pun intended, but you blink and you'll miss it. It, It's a really brief description of what must have been an amazing thing to see. 
In verse 9, when Luke writes about it, here it is. He says, And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. That's it. That's it. As they were looking, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of sight. That is the ascension in a sentence. And not even all of the sentence is devoted to the event. It's pretty succinct. Luke's treatment of this amazing thing. And yet the way that he treats it is interesting. He does direct the eye through this sentence. He says they were looking on. As they were looking on, they were looking. The apostles were looking. Have you ever noticed when you walk into a room and everybody's looking in the same direction, what do you do? You look. right? Your eye is directed by the gaze of the people around you. There's this natural instinct that we have to just look at what everybody is looking at. And so Luke tells us they were looking at him. They were looking at him, a sentence that invites us, too, to fix our gaze on Christ. And as we follow their eyes to see him, he is lifted up. He's lifted up. And you can imagine their eyes and our eyes, if we were there, following him as he goes. One moment he's speaking, and the next moment he is ascending. He's He's lifting up, and we watch him go until finally the clouds conceal him. He disappears. And it's such a sight to see that the implication is they they look for a while. They gaze. And you, you could understand. I've never seen anything like this, but I suspect that should it ever happen, if I'm talking to someone and they suddenly ascend, I'll probably keep looking to see where they went. What else are you going to do? Like, how could you look away what you've just seen? Can you believe? Can you believe what just happened? Was that real? Did I just go crazy? Did did you see that? He was here. And then he suddenly was lifted up. And now he's there somewhere in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. That just happened. And they stared in awe. What a sight. They would have heard about the transfiguration from those who were there. They would have gotten that story, and that was certainly a glorious thing to to hear about. But now they've seen something. They've seen Jesus ascend to heaven. It is a wonder. It's incredible. They just can't turn away. That lingering gaze of the apostles, it would have been full of emotion, full of feeling. If you imagine yourself in that situation looking up at Jesus who's left, the awe that would fill you, the emotion, the trembling, what you just witnessed from, from a teacher who did many miracles, who came back from the dead, but now to see this, it, it's, it's unbelievable. Awe, wonder, joy, joy that, that such a thing is possible. And maybe a creeping sense of loneliness as they gaze. Because what's just happened has to dawn on them. The king of their kingdom just left. The king they were looking to to restore the kingdom, he just left. And and we're still here. That feeling, sometimes if you attend a wedding... You go to the ceremony, you go to the reception afterwards, a party. There's that moment where the bride and groom finally leave. 
And there's this, this peak of excitement as they emerge and, and all of the kids try to weaponize the rice or whatever has been given to them to, to pelt the bride and groom as they go. And they get into the car and they leave and someone has tied something to the back of the car to make it really festive. And then you see them disappear. And now everyone sort of stands there looking. But the people the whole thing was about who are at the center of all the festivities, the people who were the reason for joy are gone. And you stand there for a moment, looking down the street at where they disappeared. And it's joyous, but it's also empty, lonely, because they're gone now. And all of that joy you felt has come to an end. It's over. They must have felt that. As they gazed into the clouds where Jesus had disappeared, it's over. He was here, now he's gone. Is this it? Are we done? Fortunately, there are some people on the scene to set the record straight. Interesting. When you see the life of Jesus, the, the beginning and the end is accompanied by messengers, by angels from God who direct your expectations, who direct, in many cases, your gaze, who tell you what's important and what's not. When Luke gives his account of the resurrection in chapter 24 of Luke, right at the end, there are two angels who appear at the empty tomb. And the angels offer what's a little bit of a rebuke, a little bit of a setting the record straight. They say, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Those angels make that declaration of the resurrection. Here, two angels appear, and they have a similar kind of rebuke, similar redirection. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven as if there's something strange about the fact that they're still looking? Why are you doing this? Why are you standing there gazing into heaven? This Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The apostles are in awe of his going, and the angels say, look to his second coming. Look to his second coming. Don't just look up in awe. Look ahead in hope. Look ahead in hope. If you think about these two rebukes, Jesus' words and then the angels' words here, I think there's a, a lesson that we can learn from these. We've already seen one thing, you don't know the plan, but you will see the power. But now we see this, no one knows the time, but the king will return. He will return. It's not over. You haven't been abandoned. You haven't been left alone. No, you don't know the timing, but he will return. The same Jesus that you just saw go up, they say, will come again. In the same way, he will come again. Don't just stand there looking in awe at his departure. Know that he will come again. Know that he will return. Don't just look up in awe. Look ahead with hope. Sometimes it's all about knowing where to look. Knowing where to look. There's another implication, I think, in the words of the angels. They find the apostles gazing up into the clouds where Jesus disappeared. You might take their rebuke and hear these words. You may be tempted 
by this vision of glory to remain passive, to passively wait, to contemplate, to be paralyzed with wonder, but instead you need to see to the kingdom. You need to see to the kingdom. They're being told, yes, he's gone, but he will come again. Another set of bookends, bookending the spiritual kingdom between the ascension and the second coming is this this time of this spiritual kingdom, the church, where God is restoring us through grace. Don't just stand looking in contemplation at what has been done, but look to what is happening now. Look to what must be done. Look to the kingdom. I've said before that when we say something is spiritual, we don't mean it is anti-physical. When we describe the, the kingdom as a spiritual kingdom, oftentimes that's the assumption that we make, that super spiritual people are the ones who transcend mere physical concerns. They are otherworldly people. The physical world isn't what matters to them. They focus on the world above or the world to come. That's what really spiritual people do. But when the angels find the apostles focused on the world above, they redirect their gaze. They redirect their eyes from wonder to action. From wonder to action. The angels point their eyes, they point our eyes at the right priority. We must see to the kingdom. Jesus will be back, but don't just stand there waiting. Look to Jerusalem. Look to Judea and Samaria. Look to the end of the earth. Don't wait for Jesus to come back and meet you here. Go to the end of the earth and meet him there. That's the implication of their words. See to the kingdom. Seeing to the kingdom means seeing to the spread of the gospel, sharing grace in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, to the end of the earth, sharing grace. It means, seeing to the kingdom means being open about our faith with the people that that God has placed in our life, coming out as Christians, being clear about it. You don't have to be an ugly, angry Christian constantly judging everyone around you, but don't be a closet Christian. Don't be afraid to own it. Don't be afraid to speak of the hope that lies within you. Spread the gospel. Share grace. That's seeing to the kingdom. That's seeing to the kingdom. Seeing to the kingdom also means serving the body because these physical needs matter. We serve God best when we serve the physical embodied people he's made in his image. Ironically, the best way to serve God is not to gaze into the clouds and contemplate the great questions. It's to do the simple things, to meet the simple needs of the people all around us to serve the body. Sometimes seeing to the kingdom means tearing ourselves away from contemplation when action is required. That's a hard thing to hear sometimes. When you think contemplation is the be-all and end-all, the way to be spiritual is to meditate until it all makes sense. Jesus says, it's not going to make sense. It is not for you to know. It's not for you to know, but to do, but to do. The history of the spiritual kingdom is bookended from the ascension to the second coming. But how we get from the beginning to the end, that's the church. That's the life 
of the church. It is the growth of the body of Christ in the spirit. It's easy to tell yourself, I'm not spiritual enough. It's easy to think, I don't know enough. I don't understand enough. But sometimes you just need to get your head out of the clouds and see to the kingdom. Just do what you've been given to do. Just follow the lead of the spirit and see to it. Even when you're not ready, even when you don't understand, when you don't know, just do it. Pastors of all people sometimes need to be reminded to get their head out of the clouds. We were just at Presbytery this past week. One of the things on on the committee that I serve on that we do is we uh, interrogate, sorry, we examine pastors for ordination or who are transferring into our uh, Presbytery from other regions And uh, it's not a slip of the tongue to say we interrogate because we delight in tripping them up. There's nothing better than a guy who's been in ministry for like like 10, 20, 30 years. And and you, you get him to stumble over something really basic and you're like, yes, I succeeded. But as you can imagine... Uh, amateur theologians have a tendency when, when they talk about even the most uh, basic things to use really complicated language to express it. And so during the course of one of these interviews, one of the ruling elders on the committee stopped one of the pastors and said, okay, he'd just been describing the gospel, explaining what, what the gospel is. And this elder said, okay, that's great, but now tell it to me again as if we were in the elevator together and I'm getting off on the fourth floor. And there was a long pause, right? Like the gospel is easy to explain if you have all the time in the world and very difficult if you don't have much. And uh, so there was some stumbling and eventually there was a, an answer that was given. And I found myself asking that question to myself. How would you have that conversation? How would you talk to someone who's not on a committee of theological examiners, someone who's not already bought in, where you're not preaching to the choir, somebody who's skeptical, who's never heard of this stuff before? How would you talk about the gospel to someone like that? And and as I asked myself that question, what, what came to me was the gaze of the apostles, which I'd been thinking about all week as I thought about this text. The gaze of the apostles in the clouds. After they just asked this question of Jesus, will you now restore the kingdom? And now he's gone. And and all the fullness, the longing in their hearts and realizing that Jesus has just answered them by saying, the restoration will happen through you. This will happen through you. Now that he was gone, as they looked in the clouds, they must have thought, this isn't right. This isn't how it should be. It shouldn't be up to us. We shouldn't be left behind to do this. He should have done this. He should have taken care of all of this. He should have restored it all for us and not left us, not even knowing the answers to suddenly do the work. It doesn't feel right. It feels uh, inadequate. It feels broken somehow. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. And I think that is where the gospel starts. In that realization, confronted by life and thinking to yourself, this isn't the way it's supposed to be because it happens all the time. We're surrounded by injustice, by things that are being done in a, in a slipshod way. And you say to yourself, this isn't right. This isn't the way it ought to be. This is not the process. This is not the way things should work. This is broken. It's inadequate. We find ourselves in, in loving relationships, and that love is betrayed, 
and you're cut to the the quick and you think this isn't it's not right it's it's wrong this isn't the way it ought to be you hate it sickness and death sickness and death people can tell you to accept these things to make peace with it which you can do in the abstract but when it touches the people you love you know it's not right it's wrong it's ugly there's something horrible about this. This isn't the way it should be. But it has always been this way. Read your history books. There's never been perfect justice. The thing that you're angry about, the thing that you're outraged that we don't have, human beings have never had that. There's not some golden age that we fell from. It just was never there. There's no human society where they've had this great justice. Love? Love? You need to read some romance novels. You'll find out the course of true love never did run smooth. There's never been perfect love. It's always been this way with people who love each other, hurting one another and betraying one another. This is just how it is. Sickness, death. Guess what? Everybody dies. Everybody dies from the beginning. It's always been this way. But ask yourself this. If it's always been this way, why does it bother us? Why does it feel wrong? Well, maybe the reason is because it isn't meant to be this way. Maybe we were made for something more than this. And it's the reason why, even though we've never seen anything better than this, our hearts still tell us this isn't right. This isn't the way because we long for what we were made to be. We long for restoration. We see the brokenness, but we can't accept it. We can't just say this is the way of the world. Instead, we long to see it restored. Even in little ways, imperfect ways, we still long to see that justice, that love, that restoration, because it feels right to restore and wrong to tear down. So we make up stories. We tell ourselves about once and future kings. Yes, he was defeated, but he will come again and he will make everything right. One day we'll find the right leader. We'll find the right ideology, the right program, the right philosophy, and that will restore things. That will make it all better. But these are just fairy tales. These are just stories that we've invented But like a lot of fairy tales, they do point to something true. They do point to a reality. We don't need a once and future king because we have the triune God who created all things and is committed to remake all things as well. This God is the restorer of the world. He never left us alone. He never abandoned us. The sun went and the spirit came to advance the borders of the kingdom. With the angels of Revelation 4, we can sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come with no interruption in that flow, who has fixed things by his authority and will see it happen. He will do what he has promised to do. Believe in him. And by the power of the Spirit, you will be restored. You can't know the plan, but you can see the power. 
No one knows the time, but the king will return. So get your head out of the clouds and see to the kingdom. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.